Section 15 of The Perfect World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Perfect World by Ellis Scrimsour. Book Three Exit the World After the War. Chapter One At Walla Balla. Nurse Mavis Wilton looked after her patients cheerfully. She was glad of something to do. Life had been very dull in the little township, and although the advent of the two Englishmen had made her unaccountably homesick, it had done a great deal toward breaking the monotony. In the first year of the Great War she had taken up nursing, had tended the suffering on the muddy battlefields of Flanders, had been service under the scorching sun of Salonika had continued her labors in Malta, Gibraltar, and Egypt. She was in Cairo when the armistice was signed, and applied for a post in Australia at the conclusion of the war. An orphan, she had no ties in the dear old mother country. Her only brother was sleeping in the company of thousands of others in the battle-scarred region of Ypres. She was interested in her two patients. They had come from the mine in an unaccountable manner. She heard the story of the strange woman who had accompanied them and only half believed it. It sounded so very improbable. How could it be true? What was it Mr. Travers had said? She remembered his exact words. Nurse, it was horrible, he told her. As we watched, it, the woman's face, seemed to dry up and wrinkle until it looked like parchment. The outstretched arms grew thin and bony the body trembled violently and crumpled up and fell to the ground. And when I went closer, all trace of the woman had vanished, and there was only a little patch of brown dust on the ground, and a little purple package that she had been wearing fastened to her back. The nurse could hardly believe anything so horrible, so uncanny. Yes, poor Jezria had had her wish. She had seen the sun, had drunk in God's pure air but the atmosphere was too rare and she had died. Died? Nay, withered up, and returned to the dust from which she had sprung, and nothing remained of the strange, underworld creature but a little powdery matter that was blown away to the four winds of the heaven she had just existed to see. Both Alan and Desmond lay in semi-comatose condition for many days. Their hardships had been so great their experiences so terrible that it was marvelous that they had returned sane to the upper world. As it was, both suffered from brain fever, and were now being nursed back to health and strength. The crisis over, both boys were on the high road to convalescence. Side by side in little narrow beds they lay, and gradually the knowledge of their adventures came back to them. Mavis had just entered the room one day when Alan broke the silence. Nurse, what day is it? Tuesday. What month, nurse? It's Tuesday, the twenty-fourth of June. Midsummer day? Yes, she smiled. Now you mustn't ask a lot of questions, but I'll tell you this. Both you and your friend— My cousin, corrected Alan. Well, you and your cousin have been very ill. You were brought here four weeks ago, and at first we despaired of your lives. You are both much better now, 
and we hope to have you up very soon. Now, don't talk any more." "'Nurse,' he pleaded, "'just one more question.' He pondered a minute. "'It was June at Marshfield and when—why, it must be 1915,' he finished quickly. Nurse Wilton frowned. Was this a new form of delirium? Now, don't ask questions. Nurse! Nurse, I must know! We've been away a long time. If this is June, then it must be 1915." We are a long way past 1915, said the nurse quietly. This is June 1920. You must have mistaken the date. Alan looked at her in blank amazement. Nineteen twenty, he muttered. Desmond, hoarsely, did you hear that? Now don't talk any more, commanded the nurse, and she drew the green blinds across the window and shut out the brilliant sunlight. As soon as she had gone, Desmond spoke. Six years in that hell! I can't realize it! Over six years cut right out of our lives! I don't know how we are to explain our presence in the mine," said Alan thoughtfully. I don't think it will be altogether wise to tell our whole story. I'd rather Uncle John knew first. He would, perhaps, get old Sir Christopher Somerville to organize an expedition to Kelvar. Yes, said Desmond, a properly equipped exploring party would find it comparatively easy to prove the truth of our story. Why, we have made one of the biggest racial discoveries of the century. Historically and scientifically, we shall have benefited the whole world by our experience." "'Poor Jezria,' said Alan suddenly. "'What an end!' The first day the boys were coherent. They had asked about their little purple companion, and it was Nurse Wilton who had broken the news of her death. The boys had taken it very quietly and the nurse was unable to form any ideas on the relation she bore to them. But they really felt towards her as they would have done to a domestic animal. They scarcely realized she was human. In fits and starts the cousins recounted their adventures to each other. Even yet they could scarcely realize they had come through safely. Daily they both grew stronger and the marks of privation and suffering which had so disfigured their features were nearly wiped away. They were afraid to cable old Sir John and tell him of their miraculous escape. We must break the news gently to him, for he has mourned us both, and it may be too much of a shock for him to learn we are both alive and in Australia," said Alan. Desmond chuckled. Australia! Fancy coming out at the other end of the world! It's almost like a fairy story, isn't it? Do you remember we wondered where we should eventually land?" Nurse Mavis entered, her arms full of flowers. "'Now,' she said briskly, "'there's too much talking going on. I am sure you will both overtax your strength. Besides, I have a visitor for you this afternoon.' "'A visitor?' echoed both boys. "'Yes, Mr. Travers, the mine manager, is very anxious to see you and he wants to return you your property." "'What property?' "'Some packages you had when you—came in Wallabala?' The boys looked at each other blankly. They had entirely forgotten the papyrus and censer and jewels they had brought from the tomb of Korah. 
they had been worrying about their financial position, and now, if the jewels proved to be real, they could raise enough money and to spare for their expenses and their fares back to England. "'Mr. Travers will be here in about half an hour,' went on the nurse. "'Do you feel well enough to be wheeled out in chairs to the garden?' "'Please,' said Desmond, "'I'm sick of this room.' But they felt very weak as they walked across the corridor to where the bath-chairs were awaiting them with many comfortable cushions and rugs. One of the under-nurses wheeled Allen out first, and as Mavis tucked the rugs round Desmond, he whispered, "'Wheel me once round the garden first, nurse.' The hazel eyes smiled down at the blue ones, and a touch of color came into the nurse's pretty cheeks. Of the two strangers, Desmond was her favorite. He reminded her of her brother. In many ways he was so helpless, and she mothered him and cared for him, until love had overtaken her unawares. She wheeled him along the grassy paths, and he asked her to stop and pick him a rose, but when she offered it he saw only the roses in her cheeks, smelt only the perfume of her hair. "'Mavis, Mavis,' he whispered, "'will you come back to England with us, with me?' when we go? It seems too soon to speak. I'm an old crock, old before my time, but you have brought me back to life and hope. I can't tell you what we have been through, Alan and I. Some day you shall know the whole story. Meanwhile, may I hope? I love you with my whole soul. Come back to England with me as my wife." The hazel eyes grew tender as Mavis bent over the chair and smoothed the thin hand that lay on the coverlet. "'I do care,' she whispered tremulously. "'I have grown to care a great deal. But are you sure? I know so little of you both. I realize you have been through some terrible experiences. I won't question you, I will trust you, but isn't it wiser to wait? Wait until you are stronger?' Perhaps in England there was a girl once." The pretty lips trembled. "'A girl you once cared for. She may be waiting still. But you have been ill and have forgotten.' "'No,' said Desmond firmly. "'There has never been a woman in my life. I swear it. Never!' Suddenly, as he spoke, there came before his eyes the picture of a purple woman leaping into the flames, Kawika. "'My God!' he cried. "'Listen, Mavis, I'm not worthy of you. One day I will tell you everything. It is true there was a woman once.' Mavis stifled a cry. "'Listen, she wasn't a woman of this world, but like Jezria, the woman who was with us when we came here. I did not love her. I think I loathed her, but she was like a siren.' she exercised an unholy power over me. Mavis, she asked me to marry her." "'Did you?' in a whisper. A flash of shame came over the white face. "'Yes, Mavis,' hoarsely. For weeks I lived in her house, until my cousin found me. When he appeared she did her best to woo him also. She cast me aside but he was strong where I had been weak. No overture she made was strong enough to tempt him. 
He it was who brought me to my senses and saved me from everlasting shame." "'You loved her?' "'No! A thousand times no! Mavis, it's difficult to explain. Our whole story is so improbable, so fantastic, that without certain undeniable proofs which we hold it would be considered as the fantasy of a disordered brain. This woman was nothing to me, really. When we were together I loathed her and hated her, almost feared her, but I was clay in her hands. It was a difficult situation. At that time I did not understand her language or the ways of her people. Oh, how can I make you understand? She wanted me as a new kind of toy. She knew nothing of morality or life as we know it. Her power was almost mesmeric. Is she living still? No. She died, oh, years ago," passing his hand wearily across his brow. I am sorry, Mavis. I had forgotten. I had no right to speak to you, but all recollection of Kawika had faded from my mind until you spoke of another woman. Will you forget what I said? I beg of you, don't despise me too much. Dear, I hardly know what to say. I forgive you freely. I nursed you back to life, Desmond. I devoted my whole time to you. While Matron and Nurse Fanshawe attended to your cousin, I watched over you. You grew dear to me. I wanted to see your eyes look at me with recognition in them. I... I... wanted you to... to like me, a little. Then, when you first became convalescent, I loved to talk to you. Dear, I can forget the past. Life since 1914 has changed. Women have changed. We are no longer the narrow-minded, stay-at-homes we were before the war." "'The war?' asked Desmond wonderingly. "'Yes, the Great War. The war with Germany.' He looked puzzled, but asked no questions, only lay back with his eyes closed, thinking. We understand the temptations of sex," she went on, and can forgive. You asked me just now to marry you. I'll marry you most gladly whenever you like, and I'll do my best to make you forget your terrible experiences. Wait," as Desmond would have spoken, I'll ask no questions. When the time is ripe you can tell me all. Meanwhile I'll be content to love and trust. There was no one in sight. A tall hedge on either side of the garden walk gave them shelter. "'Kiss me, Mavis,' said Desmond hoarsely. "'Oh, my darling, how I love you!' And so the old, old story was told once more. "'Nurse Wilton! Nurse Wilton!' Matron's voice was calling, and it was a rosy-cheeked nurse who answered. "'Nurse, wherever have you been?' Mr. Travers has been waiting over half an hour to see the patients." Half an hour? Mavis offered no excuse. Indeed, she had none, and she wheeled her charge to Alan's side. As she turned away to fetch Mr. Travers, she heard Alan say, petulantly, "'Wherever have you been all this time, Des?' But she didn't catch Desmond's reply. If she had, it would have set her thinking for he said in an awestruck tone, "'Lanny, old boy, do you know there has been a war? 
A war with Germany? And we've missed it, old chap, we've missed it." Mr. Travers was a genial soul and loved by all the miners. He came forward and greeted the boys cheerily. "'Well, I'm glad to hear you are both better. A nice fright you gave every one to be sure. We wondered at first how you had got into such a position.' He laughed heartily at the recollection. However, the explanation was quite simple after all, wasn't it?" The cousins looked at one another with questioning eyes. In their opinion, the explanation could hardly be called simple. Mr. Travers, however, went on. After you had been rescued, Manel, our foreman, gave orders for the men to cease work at that point. He wanted investigations to be made after consulting me. The following day, however, we found the cave had filled with water, and the pumps were kept very busy, I can tell you. Then part of the flooring caved in and the walls gave way. Oh, it was a horrid mess. However, it was eventually cleared away, and we discovered the subterranean passage. Very ingenious indeed!" And he rubbed his hands together. The boys were frankly puzzled. "'When did you leave Caragua?' asked Mr. Travers suddenly. "'Caragua?' asked Alan. "'Yes, Caragua.' Desmond opened his mouth as if about to speak, but Alan was the first to recover his wits. "'Before we tell you our story, won't you tell us what you discovered?' he asked shrewdly. "'Certainly, my friend. I suppose it was some bet you had on?' "'Something of the sort,' agreed Alan now wholly puzzled. I thought so. I knew I was right. I shall take a bottle of rum off old man Patterson now. I told him it was the result of some freakish wager. He would have it you had discovered it by accident." "'Do go on,' urged Alan. The situation was becoming desperate. Neither of the boys had the slightest idea of what Mr. Travers was talking about. Well continued the cheery manager, you may be sure it took some time to clear away the debris after the cave-in. When it was clear, we saw a passage leading out of it, and followed it about a mile, when it became choked up, and as we had made no preparations, we returned and decided to continue our investigations another day. Well, from both boys, it was a Thursday. John Cornlake, Bill Watson and one or two other good, all-round pickhands came with Manel and me. It was a long road, two and three-quarter miles by our pedometer, pitch dark as you know. Suddenly we saw a speck of blue in the distance. We moved the boulder aside, how cleverly it is hidden among the rocks and undergrowth, and we realized at once it was the exit of Red Mark's tunnel. Neither of the boys spoke. They saw the humor of the situation, but were afraid lest by a word they might give themselves away. "'It must be a hundred and twenty years since it was used. How did you come to discover it?' "'A fellow told us about it,' said Alan vaguely, after the fraction of a pause, and Mr. Travers was content. "'Of course, when the shaft of our mine was sunk, the workmen searched for the entrance to the tunnel but it was never discovered, and I don't suppose it ever would have been except by a lucky accident. I suppose you were unable to find your way back to Caragua, was that it? 
you were in a pretty bad condition when you were found. We have already informed the government of the discovery, he went on, and agents have been sent down to inspect it. We are not sure what the result will be. Everyone in Wallabala wants to have it opened up as a sort of showplace. It would certainly do the township an immense amount of good. Red Mark and his fellow convicts who escaped through it have certainly left a wonderful monument behind them." So, it flashed on Alan's mind at once. In some miraculous way, the entrance to the passage by which they had come from Cora's tomb had again blocked up. Their secret was still their own, but a subterranean passage made by early eighteenth-century convicts had been unearthed instead. Did Red Mark dig the passage himself? asked Alan. The story goes that Red Mark and a fellow convict escaped and commenced a passage. Wallabulla was a large farm estate at that time, and was employing nearly sixty convicts. Escape was almost impossible, the place was so well guarded, and such brutal treatment was inflicted on those that attempted to escape that few tried. Red Mark and his companion were lucky, however, and they managed to elude the bloodhounds. Their friends helped them with food. Feverishly they worked at the tunnel. It was their plan to burrow to the sea. It took them several years to complete it, but they accomplished their stupendous task at last. The night it was finished, fifty convicts vanished. They had ransacked the larders and had taken plenty of food with them. Those that were left talked vaguely about having heard of a subterranean passage, but it was never found, at least not until now. Those convicts were never seen again. But at Caragua Creek a small sailing craft disappeared, and on it, doubtless, went Red Mark and his friends. But, of course, you've heard the story before. How did you find the place? By accident? And then I suppose you wagered you'd find your way through to the other end. Alan smiled. Mr. Travers was extremely helpful. He talked so much himself that he gave no one else the chance of speaking, and he considerately answered all the questions that he put to the boys himself. "'Yes,' said Desmond, who had taken his cue from his cousin. "'We told a friend about it who wagered us one thousand pounds we would find our way through.' Unfortunately, our lanterns went out, we lost our way, we had no food, and—and, and I suppose, you were a week or more in that cave, hungry and worn out?" finished Mr. Travers helpfully. "'Now I've brought you your property back,' and he handed them the packages they had brought from the tomb at Cora. "'Oh, you might give me an official receipt for them,' and he handed the boys a paper for them to sign. "'By the way,' he continued, as he put the receipt away. That woman!" His genial face grew solemn. What was it? Was it some—some some joke you had prepared? Or was it—? I can't explain yet, said Alan shortly. We are going home to England, where we have a very strange story to tell. I cannot explain the phenomenon you saw, but I may have to call upon you to repeat the story of her death. I suppose I may use your name? By all means! I shall be only too pleased to assist you, young gentlemen, in every way I can. But I shall be glad to hear about that woman. It was damn strange. By the way, I sealed your parcels with our office seal. 
I should like you to examine them to see they are intact. We won't bother now, Mr. Travers, thank you. We have absolute confidence in you. By the way, he added, as if in afterthought, could you put me in touch with anyone who would buy one or two unset gems? I have some with me, and am anxious to convert them into cash for our immediate use." "'That's easily done,' said Mr. Travers. Our general manager is connected with Messrs. Frimpton, Long and Beauchamp, of Melbourne. They are, I think, the biggest dealers in gold and precious stones in Australia. I will get an introduction for you. Thanks very much. Don't mention it. Now, I think I've stayed quite long enough for a first visit. Good-bye, Mr. Forsyth. Good-bye, Mr. Desmond. Take care of yourselves, and don't get over-tired." And the kindly man left them. "'We got out of that pretty easily, thanks to you,' said Desmond, as they saw him disappear down a bend in the garden. I couldn't think what he was driving at. "'It's extremely lucky the way to Cora's tomb has been hidden again. That heavy fall of rock and earth did us a good turn." Alan remained silent a few minutes and looked at his cousin quizzically. Then, quietly, "'Haven't you anything to tell me?' "'What do you mean?' "'Oh, my dear chap, don't think I'm merely inquisitive, but we've been like brothers all our lives. I've watched our pretty nurse. I've watched you, too. Have you spoken?' "'Yes. My God, Ellen, I'm not worthy. Think, Koika. That is past. It's no good worrying over what is done. You were not responsible down there, alone in that hell. Have you told Mavis about it? I've tried to make her understand about Koika, but I've told her nothing about our adventures and our discoveries. I'm glad of that. I should like Uncle John to be at the first telling of our experiences. I'm glad about Mavis for your sake. I like her very much. In fact, I might say I've grown to be almost fond of her. All happiness, old boy. I should like to be married before we start for England. Will she agree? I think so. Well, I'll be best man. Ah, Mavis! as she appeared. There is to be no formality now, you know. You are going to marry one of the best. And you've got to like me, too." Mavis bent down and kissed his cheek. "'There. Alan, see how cousinly I can be?' said she, laughingly. "'Now it's time you both went to bed. You've been up quite long enough for one day.' That night, before the lights were extinguished, she told them the story of the Great War. "'Where have you been?' she asked in bewilderment. Why, every one in the world knows of it. It's been horrible, terrible. White fighting against white, white employing black to help them. Every nation in the world suffered in one way or another. I know it sounds improbable, dear, but neither Alan nor I knew the long-talked-of war with Germany had really come to pass until you spoke of it today. Don't ask any questions. Just trust me. It's all very mysterious and strange," said she ruefully, but I will possess my soul in patience. As soon as he was able, Alan sent one magnificent diamond and half a dozen emeralds to Messrs. Frimpton, Long and Beauchamp, and received in return banknotes to the value of five thousand pounds. 
The boys had also chosen some diamonds for Mavis, and had had them set into an engagement ring for the woman Desmond loved. Already they were well enough to leave the hospital, but as Wallabala was only a very small mining township, there was no accommodation for visitors, so the cousins remained at the hospital as paying guests. One day, late in July, a very pretty wedding took place. The bride was dressed in her nurse's uniform, and the bridegroom and best man were arrayed in unconventional white duck. The ceremony was performed by the local clergyman, and there was a big spread afterwards at the hospital, to which everybody in the township had been invited. Alan felt rather sad, as he stood waiting on the platform for the train to come in that would carry off the happy pair to their honeymoon. No woman had ever entered his life. His great ideal was a dream still, and he wondered if the time had passed for her ever to materialize. "'You'll arrange for everything, won't you?' said Desmond. "'Rather. Now, don't worry. The boat leaves Sydney at noon on the 7th of next month, eleven days from now. It's the Clan Ronald. I'll book your berths and await you there. Goodbye. Goodbye. Their farewells were said, and Alan was left alone. He stayed a few days longer at Wallabala among the friends he had made, and then travelled by easy stages to Sydney. The country was very beautiful, but he longed to get home. He longed to see the smoky chimneys of London, the bustling streets, to hear again the noisy traffic, and at last to enjoy the truly rural beauty of the English lanes and woods. He longed to see his uncle. Was he still alive? he wondered. He was afraid to cable. He was afraid to write. Suddenly an idea came into his head and he wondered why he had not thought of it before. He would write to his uncle's confidential clerk and friend, Masters. He could trust him to break the news gently. Hotel Majestic, Sydney. Dear Masters, he wrote. You'll be surprised to hear from one whom you no doubt have long mourned as dead. Don't be afraid. It is no ghost who is writing you, but a living man. I cannot explain everything in this letter, but I am catching the next boat home, and I will telegraph on reaching Plymouth the exact time we expect to arrive in London. Yes, it's we, Masters, for I have found my cousin Desmond. It all sounds wildly impossible, I know and I am writing you that you may break the news to my uncle that we still live. Tell him we are longing to see him. Tell him Desmond has found a wife and is bringing her home. I can say no more. My hand is trembling with excitement as I write. We have seen strange things, been to many strange places since we left Marshfielden, but impress upon Sir John that, had we been able to communicate with him, we should have done so. With our renewed wishes to Sir John and yourself, yours very sincerely, Alan Forsythe. There, I think that will meet the case, and Alan fastened up the letter and posted it. The seventh at last. All the luggage was on board. Desmond and his wife drove up radiantly happy to the quay and waved excitedly as they saw Alan leaning over the bulwarks. The bell clanged, the sailors gave vent to their sonorous cry, "'All ashore! All ashore!' The siren sounded. Gradually the great vessel glided away. The smoke belched out in volumes from her funnels. 
the landing stage grew smaller and smaller until it was out of sight altogether. The vessel had started on her journey to England. That night, after dinner, when Mavis had gone to her stateroom, the two cousins had a heart-to-heart -heart talk in the moonlight. "'It seems impossible we are really going home at last,' said Desmond. "'I feel like a child again. I have so much to learn. When we disappeared aeroplanes were only beginning to be used, now they are almost perfect, and are vehicles of everyday use. The whole world seems to have progressed a century in these last few years. There certainly is a great deal for us to learn, agreed Alan. But we must leave it to Uncle John. He will put us right about everything. I wonder how he has progressed with his airship, said Desmond after a pause. We used to laugh at the dear old chap. He has the laugh on us now. He always said that the future of commerce was in the air. Have you the papyrus safe? asked Desmond suddenly. Alan laughed. Rather! Or at least the purser has. I bought a strong deed-box in Sydney and packed everything in it. Here's the key. When next we open it, please God, it will be in the presence of Uncle John." Alan looked sadly at the scene in front of him. A brilliant moon had risen and was sending its beams across the phosphorescent waters. The air was sweet and balmy. The Southern Cross was discernible and the whole scene was like a wonderful painting. The chud-chud of the engines and the swish of the water was the only sound to be heard. Somehow Alan felt very much alone that night. Desmond, his childish playmate, his boyhood's chum, and later his companion in adventure, seemed lost to him. He had married a wife. That was the trouble in a nutshell. Things would never be the same again. He was fond of Mavis, she was a dear girl and would be a splendid wife for his cousin. "'Good night, old chap,' said he huskily. "'I'm tired. I'm going to bed. I've been keeping you too long from Mavis. Good night, Alan. I think I will turn in now. I shall tumble to sleep as soon as my head touches the pillow,' he added boyishly. "'Good night.' But it was early morning before Alan went to sleep. He wondered what the future had in store for him. Would it prove as adventurous as the past? Or would he remain a lonely old bachelor, a wanderer on the face of the earth? No fixed home of his own. A favorite uncle, perhaps, to Desmond's sons. Yes, he was getting morbid. He was still young, barely thirty, and had his life before him. Somewhere, perhaps, a mate was waiting for him. Somewhere, sometime, he would find his ideal. And then... The clock struck five, he yawned, turned over, and fell asleep. End of section 15